I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Nick Marks returns to the program to discuss his new book co-authored with Matt Sinkowicz, entitled, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them, detailing the rise of a niche market with potential political implications, namely what they call the right-wing comedy complex, which encompasses a range of comedians from Tim Allen and his sitcom Last Man Standing to the late-night Fox News host Greg Gutfeld and internet personalities like Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder. Now, this book is by no means a defense of right-wing comedy or a debate about what constitutes comedy, punching up versus punching down humor, for example, but rather an attempt to look at how, in the past few years, the right wing has carved out its own niche in the comedy world and what the implications of that are. All that and more with Nick Marks, co-author of That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. Welcome back to Parallax Views, the guest that I enjoyed having on just a few months ago, uh, but I'm having on again because he has a new book out and I'm really excited about it. Uh, the new book is That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. Uh, co-author Nick Marks is with us. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. How are you doing? Good, good. And um, I'm, I'm glad that I had you back on because I'm, I'm noticing you're making the rounds 
I, I feel like I had you on even before the book came out. Yeah. So I feel, I feel like I was ahead of the curve. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's interesting. I was telling you before the show started that uh, the last time I had you on, I titled the episode, uh, The Rise of Right-Wing Comedy. And, uh, you know, I thought people were going to get mad saying like, oh, there is no such thing as right-wing comedy. But the response I got uh, from my audience, which is largely, I would say, liberal or left-wing, was essentially, what do you mean the rise? It's, it's always been with us. Amos and Andy. And uh, Andrew Dice Clay. You know, there's always been horrible, evil right-wing comics, uh, which that, that surprised me because I feel like there's been a lot of criticism of the idea that there is right-wing comedy. Uh, so maybe you could talk about that and, and the title, That's Not Funny, because I, I feel like a lot of people would just look at the title and be like, what do you mean, right-wing comedy? That's not a thing. Uh, I, there is only John Stewart. There is only uh, John Oliver. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great weird sort of contradiction you you've raised there. We 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 called the book "That's Not Funny" simply because we wanted to acknowledge the very honest reaction that many um, liberals, many center left people like myself, have to the notion of conservative or, or right wing comedy. Oh, that's not funny. It's a purely uh, taste-based judgment, right? I don't like this thing, therefore I'm not going to pay much attention to it. But the case we make in the book is that, no, you must get beyond that taste-based reaction and confront it for what it is. Um, it can be ugly, racist, reactionary, punching down humor, but to call it anything other than comedy would be dishonest. It would be uh, not acknowledging the same sort of powerful visceral reaction that we on the left have enjoyed to progressive comedy over the years, right? The same unifying mechanisms that we on the left enjoy with comedians like Stephen Colbert. So too do conservatives enjoy that with um, Gutfeld on Fox News and Joe Rogan and all the other uh, folks we discuss in the book. The um, humor of superiority is very powerful in right-wing humor. So the um, ability to find a common enemy, in this case, liberals, and sort of laugh at them and say, we're not them. We may be a disparate group of evangelical Christians or libertarians or mainstream Republicans, but at least we can cohere behind the idea that we are not liberals and we are superior to them. Let's laugh at them. Let's sort of make them our object of derision. So we didn't know how else to categorize this um, generically as an art form or as an industry, frankly, other than to call it what it is. And that's, that's comedy, a thing meant to make people laugh. Right. And I was going to say, uh, so get, getting back to what I was, I, I was sort of criticized for when we did the first show, you are, aren't of the opinion that this is necessarily an entirely new thing. And I, I think my calling the last time I interviewed you, the episode was called the rise for right wing comedy. Like, I, I think everyone should know, you're just focused on a very uh, specific set of, of um, I, I would say, a new generation in a lot yeah. of ways of right-wing comedians. You're not saying that it hasn't existed in the past either. Correct. Our, the focus of the book is roughly the last five or six years, starting roughly with the Trump administration. However, reactionary conservative modes of joking have certainly existed long before that. You identified uh, Amos and Andy and Andrew Dice Clay so sort of, uh, you, you have to remember Amos and Andy weren't viewed as a, a kind of racist minstrel show like um, in their day, like they are today. You know, we have the retrospective 
uh, hindsight of understanding the practices they were doing there. But certainly somebody like Dice is very kind of aggressively sexist and could be anti-Semitic, right? Um, the, the thing that makes today different is there's a real coherence, especially as an industry today. So these folks all get together and go on one another's podcast. They appear on Gutfeld. They refer one another to each other's shows. They, they open for one another in live stand-up shows. So I think in a previous era, the impulses for different types of conservative comedy were a little bit uh, disparate and they operated independent of one another. Today, they're a little more strategic and networked via social media and intentional about those connections. So let's talk about one of the uh, forms of this right-wing comedy complex. And I think you do use the term complex to describe this, right? Yes. Okay, well, well maybe let's start with that first. Sure. Why do you call it the right-wing comedy complex? Yeah, so we use the metaphor of a, a mixed-use retail and residential complex. So the type of thing you've driven by a dozen times, maybe in a suburban part of, of whatever city you live near, where the first level is, you know, shopping and restaurants, and there might be some townhouses, and there's a little uh, kitty splash pad in the middle of it to, to occupy people. Uh, a, a complex where you can buy stuff, where you can possibly live and go out to eat afterwards. So the type of place where you're meant to hang out for three, four hours, get dinner at the end of it. The same principle is at work in right-wing comedy. There's a little bit of something for everybody on the right side of the aisle in this right-wing comedy complex. So we begin the book by describing the complex's big box store, its Walmart or its Target in the form of Greg Gutfeld on Fox News. So he's the kind of mainstream uh, front-facing uh, storefront that you, you, you drive by and you recognize, even if you don't uh, shop there, you know what it is, you know the type of person who tunes into Fox News at 11 Eastern. And he does the right wing daily show. He's got a monologue, he's got uh, guests who talk about the news of the day. They do pre recorded sketches, very much in the mold of a Conan O'Brien or Stephen Colbert or James Corden. Pick your, your uh, late night host. The second chapter we, we call paleo comedy, riffing off of uh, paleo conservatism. So the kind of na nativist, um, backward-looking mode of knowing dad humor embodied by folks like Tim Allen, Dennis Miller, and embodied by uh, Mike Huckabee, if you know his online sort of tweets and his knowing dad jokes that he does. Well, so, so real, real quick here, with, sure. with, uh, we'll move on to the other sections of it, but I, okay. I want to focus on uh, the paleo comedy stuff and then also on, on Gutfeld after that. But sure. uh, let's talk about that because, okay, you know, my mom, when I was growing up, she loved Tim Allen, but I don't think she would describe herself as like very conservative, but I think Tim Allen has leaned more and more into sort of like this MAGA type, uh, I'm a conservative uh, image. And I think it was always there to some extent, but he really leans into it, I guess, with this show. Um, I, I think it's Last Man Standing. Is that right? Yes. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, as you identified early on with uh, Amos and Andy and indeed a, a dozen network sitcoms over the decades, the, the TV broadcast sitcom has been pretty inherently conservative. It, it uh, forwards this idealized version of the heteronuclear family that owns a home. Very often the, the wife of the unit doesn't work or isn't as a professionally successful as, as the man is. This is historically speaking. A lot of those same principles inform uh, Last Man Standing. It's a pretty traditional multi-camera sitcom with a laugh track 
on broadcast television. So it aims for a very wide audience. What makes uh, Tim Allen's show particularly noteworthy though is his very direct expression of political, politically conservative views on the show. So they'll get in uh, political fights with uh, his daughters. He's got three sort of liberal daughters living at home with him. One of them's got a, a meathead-esque boyfriend, right? That's the um, uh, uh, Rob Reiner character from All in the Family, the sort of uh, liberal boyfriend that uh, uh, the father would engage in political debate with. And very often the show resolves its conflicts by sort of deferring back to Mike, sort of saying like, oh, get your, your sort of pronoun usage out of here. Oh, do I have to worry about socialism now that I've got these young folks moving in next door to me? It's a very sort of, um, it's a humor based in generational, uh, older boomer sort of wealth and comfort, hearkening uh, back to a time when stand-up comics like Dennis Miller and Tim Allen didn't have to worry about diversity initiatives and using pronouns and offending this or that group. Can't it just be me and the boys kicking back after a round of golf and, and making jokes among ourselves? So the tone of that very much carries through to many of the punchlines of, of Last Man Standing. It's interesting too, because you mentioned sitcoms almost often having an, an inherently uh, sort of conservative streak. And I remember that with sitcoms, even like um, the, the the George Lopez show, you yeah. know, back in the day where uh, there was one episode they did where their kid protested uh, the war and it embarrassed their family, and the Iraq war, that is. And uh, yeah, there's always been that sort of conservative element, although I, I think it's come out more. And um, another uh, sitcom that you cover is the reboot of Roseanne, which it, that reboot was really interesting to me because... The, the original series was actually in a lot of ways trying to break certain ground that was more liberal. Uh, but yeah. when it's rebooted, it goes in this like really weird direction. There were some episodes that I thought were interesting and maybe mildly pushed back on that conservatism. But overall, it, it did try to seem to appeal to a conservative crowd. Yeah, you're right. The original run of Roseanne was very much about a working class family and the, the, the sort of solidarity they built with their community members to get by day by day. The rebooted Roseanne was just the racist stand-up comic Roseanne kind of doing Trump MAGA talking points and getting in fights with her uh, pussy hat wearing liberal sister. So that's the turn we kind of identify with these paleo comics is the uh, the politics no longer kind of get buried in the form of the sitcom. Now they're very explicit. It's the the personalities on the shows themselves sort of saying like, how come nobody talks about Trump in the media and are, am I being shadow banned? And they'll, they'll pick up on social media talking points like that. Uh, but uh, of course, the Roseanne reboot uh, was canceled after, I think, seven episodes when Roseanne tweeted a racial epithet about Valerie Jarrett, the, the former Obama administrator. And Tim Allen, likewise, hasn't done anything that egregious, but he's been in the press, especially around the time that uh, Last Man Standing is on air, uh, saying, uh, you know, uh, being a conservative in Hollywood is a little bit like 1940s Germany. You know, he's, he's dropping these hints that you can't truly speak your mind when you're a man like me in Hollywood anymore because the liberals will come for you. So there's this kind of strain of especially older male comic like Tim Allen that's kind of wants all the, the, the sort of social media noise to be tuned out and for him to just be able to speak his mind again. 
Uh, Isn't he able to do that already, though? Uh I mean, how long did Last Man Standing last? It was it was a few seasons at least. Yeah, nine seasons. It was uh, started out as a a pretty successful uh, a a sitcom uh, that eventually jumped to Fox. uh, So the the Rupert Murdoch owned Fox Broadcast Network uh, after it got a little too uh, contentious for ABC to handle. Um, so you're right, though. Nobody's stopping these people from speaking their minds. It's all a manufactured outrage that, that they're speaking to. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it speaks to a time when uh, comedy fans were just supposed to sit back and accept that the uh, elder white male was the person in charge. He's the authority on the matter. He's the one making me laugh. I'm not going to get too bent out of shape that uh, folks of color aren't represented in this entertainment industry. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We'll move out of the the sitcom discussion here because I feel like a lot of this paleo comedy stuff it, it may not be nearly as um, influential as some of the other characters you talk about in the book. I, I don't know if you'd agree or disagree with that, but I guess I'm saying that because I, I feel like the paleo comedy you're talking about is meant to appeal to sort of this, I would say, an older demographic that that has this sort of aggrievement, like. Uh, oh, why can't we go back to the days when we had raunchy sitcoms like Married right. with Children? Um, you know, now we're not allowed to, I mean, I liked Married with Children a lot, but, yeah. you know, it's it's like we're in a different time now and it seems like they haven't, you know, um, they feel like they've been left behind in a way or, or they they haven't kept up with the times. Oh, I'm not with it anymore. So I'm going to like this stuff that offends everyone. <laughs> Correct. Uh, Palo comedy is boomer humor. The, the real sort of edge into youth territory happens in the, the later chapters that we describe. So um, Stephen Crowder, Ben Shapiro, who's not a comedian, but hosts a lot well, of well, uh, real, real, real quick then, what, what is the importance of the, the sort of paleo comedy then? Like, why do you think it's relevant to cover, even if it's not as important as maybe the Crowders and whatnot? Or... Because I think it has uh, clear connections to paleo conservative thoughts. You hear echoes of the same sort of nativism um, that preceded the rise of the George W. Bush administration, right? So when we entered Iraq and Afghanistan the last 20 years, it was very aggressively globe-trotting and globe-conquering. Paleo-comedy harkens uh, strains of conservative thought that want to, for lack of a better way of, of putting it, make America get great again, right? Let's uh, guard our borders. Let's build the economy back home. Don't worry about foreign wars. Uh, let's take care of our, our home soil first. And that metaphor of the home is very explicitly taken up in these paleo comedy sitcoms, right? I'm the man of the castle. I must protect my family first. Screw all the other people outside of that. I think we still see that uh, strain of conservative thought represented pretty prominently still in some wings of the Republican Party. Do you think those those are maybe, are, are those type of like paleo comedy sitcoms though, is it fair to say they're almost like maybe slightly less egregious than than when we get into the Stephen Crowders and whatnot. Yeah, it's another example of a a type of comedy on sale at the comedy complex. So the older folks can poke around there, like my parents will watch King of Queens and an episode of Last Man Standing and probably not, you know, distinguish between the two very much. But the real sort of recruitment of young, especially male voters happens, we argue, at some of the younger skewing forms of comedy that we identify in, uh, in other parts of the book. Um, so Ben Shapiro obviously is a, is a neocon, right? He's not a paleocon. He's uh, looking for uh, the kind of next wave of young uh, conservative thinkers. And so he's got connections to um, 
a form of comedy we call religio-rational satire. So satirists like Steven Crowder who start from a set of religiously informed first principles and then argue from there that if you don't accept my premise that there are two genders, you're a, a loony lib and I won't listen to anything you have to say and it's gonna be my job to own you with facts and logic. So the entire sort of premise of, of humor in that instance comes from superiority, from saying like, look at this silly liberal over here, let's argue them into pretzels, uh, twisting themselves into pretzels with their own logic uh, and laugh at them and we'll cohere around that laughter. So uh, just, just out of curiosity, because I don't know much about Steven Crowder. I know that he's feuded it with uh, Sam Cedar from Majority Report and stuff like that, but I really don't know where did this dude come from? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, he was a failed stand-up comic. Um, he tried his hand, and I, I've uh, talked to a few people in the stand-up world uh, about the book in recent weeks, and they've echoed that sentiment that a lot of the kind of folks hanging out in the middle tiers of this right-wing comedy universe are failed mainstream liberal comedians who found an economic lane to turn into and thought, oh, I can make more money and get more clicks by embracing this right-wing universe. In Crowder's case, I think he actually does believe some of the stuff, but he's a YouTube personality who's uh, got a, a pretty successful streaming show, Louder with Crowder. He's been on stand-up comedy tours. He's got a little gaggle of hangers on on the show that he has open for them. But the YouTube video series he's most noted for are the Change My Mind videos where he sits down at a college campus at a card table with a sign that says, there are only two genders, change my mind. And it's a recorded conversation between him and any aggravated, uh, well-meaning college student who says, no, there are many genders. And Crowder says, well, how many are there? And the college student can't uh, answer it succinctly. And uh, hilarity ensues, right? He's meant to be an object of derision after that. So it's not a conventional setup punchline joke telling structure, but it is meant to be humorous for Confederate conservative viewers who want to laugh at a common enemy with Crowder. We also see this principle at play in the Babylon Bee. Do you know the uh, conservative evangelical yeah. site? Yeah. It's run by evangelicals, right? Yeah. So uh, another strain of conservative thought that you would think wouldn't have much to do with Trumpism. But again, they unite uh, in comedy behind a shared enemy in being able to laugh at the, the loony liberals. So there again, the, the issue of trans rights and gender identity figures very prominently in their comedy. This strain of conservatism is utterly flummoxed by uh, gender as a social construction for some reason. Um, so they're the onion, right? They're the conservative onion and they do these short pithy headlines that make fun of uh, LGBTQ plus rights and frequently of Biden and Pelosi and uh, leaders in the, the de Democratic Party. Uh, but there again, they come from a very devoutly religious place that says uh, man and woman have their place on earth. Uh, there is a God. We believe in free speech and in gun rights. And if you don't believe in those things with us, then we're gonna debate you to death. We're gonna sort of twist your logic in on itself and sort of make you the object of laughter in doing so. It's interesting. I wanna come back to the to the filled comic thing because I did not know that about Crowder, uh, but there's other figures like this that I've noticed. Like there was one from a few years back and he's gone like really, really far right. He used to do PragerU videos. Mm. But, uh, I, I don't think he's mentioned in your book, but this guy, um, Owen Benjamin, 
who I, he was in a, like a few movies. I forget what big name actresses. He did some comedies, but now he's like turned into this like weird Catholic, like anti-Semite, you know, and it's just really gross. But I think he, he was like another example of like someone who kind of, you know, his career just nosedived for whatever reason, or it didn't pan out uh, the, the, with success. And he just sort of turns into this right-wing comedy guy. Is there other examples of that? Like, is this more common than I may think? Um, examples of comics who, you know, started out as liberal and, and turned right-wing aren't, aren't popping to mind. Or not, uh, not I, even turned, yeah. went from liberal to right-wing, but like, found their niche yeah. by being a right-wing comic, whereas before they may have not even been political in their comedy. Yeah, so there are, so, so this is a, a well-worn path by lots of conservative media personalities, right? So Dana Loesch, the NRA spokeswoman, is like a failed sitcom actress. Uh, there, there's a pipeline of people who find an economic niche, like you said, simply by kind of leaning into right-wing politics. Uh, there's a comedian we discuss at the end of our book, Ryan Long, who's actually com- uh, Canadian, um, who his uh, comedy treats more the sort of discourse of wokeness. You know, he's one of these kind of Rogan light people who isn't uh, avowedly like Trump supporting or political in any sense. But he's one of these people who kind of has made a name by making fun of, for example, uh, Hannah Gadsby, right? The uh, the queer comic who did the stand-up special, uh, Nanette, that was acclaimed for its, um, you know, taking up a, of gender identity. So a lot of times the reaction doesn't come from right-wing comics who are explicitly like Trump flag waivers, but they're the libertarian types who circulate on the outer fringes of, of Joe Rogan, who kind of don't like it when, um, people try to cancel, you know, certain types of comedy or speak out against, say, Dave Chappelle's latest trans slurs. If you could, I also wanted to talk about the, um, what I would say is like the, the most extreme ends of this sort of right-wing comedy complex, because you, you at least a little bit talk about these sort of really, really far-right figures like Sam Hyde of Million Dollar Extreme. Mm-hmm. And this character who just, I don't even understand it. It's really warped to me is a bronze age pervert. So who who are these sort of, there's like a far, far, far (laughs) right end of this too. Yeah. Importantly, we don't wish to equate uh, Greg Gutfeld or Tim Allen with far, far right, uh, you know, quasi neo-Nazi podcasts. But we are saying that there are social media connections that get you there and they're not that hard to, to trace. So in the same way that you spend time inside of a a retail development and you can go from the, you know, the big box store over to the restaurant on this side of it. Well, this is what we call in the complex, the basement. This is the dirty, dingy layer of trolls that remains largely unseen to the general public. But if you spend enough time clicking around, getting YouTube recommendations, you can land on Sam Hyde videos or Gavin McInnes or Michael uh, Malice. So these are trolls. These are folks who mainly exist online and speak online language that turns the reaction of viewers and of commenters in on itself. So they don't have a particularly hardcore set of political beliefs, but theirs is a more reactionary humor. Um, They are sort of fighting against what they view as mechanisms of censorship in comedy. 
and in exploring the outer edges of propriety in comedy as well. So the, uh, the YouTuber Nick Fuentes, if you've heard of him, has a, a kind of comic streak to the way he goes about very aggressively, very anti-Semitically uh, doing Holocaust denial humor, right? And at the end of the day, it's an economic niche, as you initially indicated there, JG. I think that's, that's exactly right. They found a lane nobody was occupying. And then when they found that, somebody else came along and took it one step further to the right, one step further to the extreme, because there's still money to be made there by going even and even more virulently racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic. So that, that character I mentioned, well, Bronze Age Pervert. I didn't, I didn't expect to see that name brought up yeah. in in the uh, in in a book about you know uh, the right wing comedy complex. So why why is he sort of included? And in, just for listeners, you don't have to go in depth on who he is, but uh, maybe just a brief sketch. Yeah, Bronze Age Pervert is an uh, eponymous sort of like semi obscure uh, right wing intellectual who uh, wrote a fairly well-selling uh, kind of pamphlet called Bronze Age Mindset. And it's written in this weird sort of paleolithic uh, pattern. He'll purposely make grammatical mistakes and speak in kind of like a caveman patois. Uh, his is uh, a, a semi-satirical attempt to get readers to embrace uh, in, in a Jordan Peterson-esque sensibility, right? Like self-help and male empowerment and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, the Nishian Ubermensch. <laughs> right. There are some very clear invocations of Nazi ideology, pretty frankly, right? And, uh, but it's all wrapped up in this semi-serious, like, kidding, not kidding, make your bed and you can be the best man you can be, but, but also, it's also, like, the Jews in, are, yeah. I was going to say, he also does things in such, like, a, like this over the top and even there's like a weird homoerotic element to yeah. it where I think people look at it and they're like, oh, no, no one would take any of this seriously. Yeah, correct. No one would take any of it seriously except for the, the small portion of, of right wing uh, thought leaders who do. So we see uh, Bronze Age mindset cited and brought up in serious libertarian circles like the Claremont Institute, where it's being held up as an example of like the new right wing thought. Here is the way that 20-year-olds coming out of, um, you know, right-wing think tanks or, or right-wing cultural circles are really talking and behaving in the universe, even though, as you mentioned, it's clearly meant to be kind of satirical and silly and over the top. We see it being taken seriously by right-wing thought leaders regardless. So in that way, it's almost like using, it's saying, oh, haha, this is just for fun. This is just humor but they're, they're also serious at the same time. It's trolling, yeah. It's saying one thing and, and meaning the exact opposite, if only to get a, a reaction out of someone. So you'll, you'll hear that um, defense marshaled, especially by someone like Gavin McInnes, the uh, founder of the Proud Boys, who has appeared on Greg Gutfeld's Red Eye and on his uh, Saturday show. Uh, he's got his own podcast now, right? He's kind of trying to refashion himself as a, a bit of a, an intellectual leader but who anytime he's getting in trouble associated with the Proud Boys, he'll say, no, that was just bullshitting, right? We were just kidding. We didn't mean for you to actually go out and beat up that gang of, of non-white folks who are rallying for Black Lives Matter. That's just us joking around, right? So they're constantly using this sort of uh, 
joking defense mechanism. At the same time, they're disavowing any violent real world actions that their joking inspires. So let's get into Gutfeld more because uh, that was the other thing people said to me about the last episode they, that we did. They said, oh, uh, there was that one time Gutfeld got like the highest rating on primetime, but yeah. it's not a big deal. The only people listening to him are, you know, dumb boomers. That was the reaction people had to uh, us talking about Gutfeld. So what would you say to those people that are like, ah, Gutfeld doesn't matter. You know, the only people that watch Fox News are these, uh, you know, boomer cons. I would say two things. The first is that he remains competitive with and very often more popular than all of our liberal late night hosts. So he routinely is more watched, at least on television, than Colbert, Fallon, Kimmel, and certainly the, the later hosts as well. Uh, the, the second thing is that while Gutfeld may not be a, a kind of like uh, ideologically inspirational figure in and of himself, he has connections to these other figures in the right-wing universe so that he can serve as a gateway, right? He can turn people on to Joe Rogan, to Steven Crowder, to Michael Malice, uh, that then can then lead folks to much more bad faith actors on the right. So it's not necessarily that Gutfeld is going to poison the minds of even your Mima and Pep Pep who are staying up late to, to watch him, but that he introduces people to other forms of right-wing comedy via the, the guests he has on, by the social media conversations he carries out with them. And this is the, the sort of more cohesive picture that he's very much the, the face of. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, the rise of, of Greg Gutfeld? Because I actually remember I, I honestly remember when he was doing the the Daily Show rep. Uh, well, it was the it was the Fox News version of the Daily Show. I was going to say rip off, but it, it was interesting. Red Eye to me was like something that I, I could see people, you know, late night college students, students that are up real late at night watching it because she had like weird people on it. You know, you had like yeah. the singer from Guar, and it <laughs> right. wasn't always. It didn't always feel like it was like always necessarily political. So I could see why people ended up watching it. And it seems like he kept going more and more into doing the political stuff as he was like groomed to be a top star at Fox News. And maybe he brought a lot of viewers uh, of Red Eye that initially yeah. weren't even necessarily political with him. That's exactly right. I mean, he uh, did a conservative version of Adult Swim before that existed. It was a purely silly late night a comedy talk show that just had the most random people on and wasn't necessarily overtly political yet, but was more like silly and playful in the way that a kind of stoner overnight TV show would be. Yeah, uh, it, that, that, that's what I was going to say too. That's why I mentioned, you know, if you're like a metalhead, you know, this dude having Guar on is kind of cool. I think that's also the problem when you, we mentioned Sam Hyde, yeah. Million Dollar Extreme, when they had that show on Adult Swim, they would have uh they would have like goth bands on like soft. Yeah. So they, they would, they sort of get people in through these sort of like, um, I guess, counterculture niches. That's right. Yeah. And he, at least the red eye example is very much trying to kind of emulate that sort of countercultural cachet that something like million dollar extreme has. But the specific example of a uh, Gutfeld and red eye is one of just star grooming over the course of 15 years at Fox news. So, uh, that network is very good at developing and um, showcasing stars, whether it's uh, Sean Hannity or, or Jesse Waters or Laura Ingram. 
those folks tend to kind of start in the lower rungs as like field producers and eventually work their way up to be, you know, the face of their own late night shows. What Gutfeld has always had in his career uh, is a very kind of wry, ironic sensibility that leaned right. So he starts out at uh, Maxim Magazine. He circulates through the right wing uh, sort of media universe. Red Eye has other folks we talk about in the book on as regular guests, including Steven Crowder, Gavin McInnes, uh, Amy Schumer debates Steven Crowder. You can look up this, this clip that we discuss in the book. So it's- I, I was going to say, there's almost like a, um, there's a carnival-esque element to yes. what he does on Gutfeld's show. Uh, just that show, Gutfeld with the exclamation mark. Like, um, I didn't know until a while back, I, I think one of his regular people that he has on is this wrestler who turns out to be really conservative named uh, Tyrus. Brodus Clay, Tyrus. Tyrus. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, just from a, a tactical standpoint, it's smart that they get people like that on because there's, mm-hmm. you know, kids that like pro wrestling and they'll see, oh, Tyrus is on the show. I'm going to watch it. You know, there is like a, a sort of carnival element to it that I think he uses to pull people in. Precisely right. It's no accident that his, uh, the Ed McMahon to his Johnny Carson is a big hulking black uh, former pro wrestler, right? It's, if you watch pro wrestling, it's got that kind of anything goes carnival atmosphere. And that's the tone he sets for that show. So even though he's moved away from the far, you know, reaches of, of overnight in red eye, and it's now officially um, opposite the daily show. And indeed he encroaches into the first half hour of the late night broadcast shows. It's still this kind of random, silly freewheeling talk show. That's not as sort of conventionally set up punchline as you would expect out of a Fallon monologue. And it's more sort of uh, catch as catch can. And sometimes the guests aren't always really informed about what they're talking about. But anyway, let's steer it back to how silly it is that, uh, you know, the government wants to fund uh, sexual transition surgeries or whatever the case is. It's interesting too with Gutfeld show because there's not really any, and I I mean, I guess this is because it's it's a comedy show or whatever, but there's not any discussion of like, in my view, like actual policy a lot of times or even yeah. like news. It's it's like, oh, here's this funny video of one of our correspondents pretending to be a liberal. Ha ha, we own the libs, you know. That's precisely right. The Gutfeld's humor is less about making fun of specific partisan issues. And it's more about uh, the, the discourse about those issues. Making fun of liberals' reactions to issues is where he makes his sort of comedic home. And uh, if you're unfortunate enough to follow Gutfeld on his social media feeds, he frequently posts the minute long sort of like sketches that they do on that show. And they are awful. They, they are devoid of anything resembling a laughter. It's just this dredging up of like sort of conservative talking points, making fun of liberals. Uh, Kat Timp, one of his regular contributors, plays a recurring character named uh, something Deborah, uh, she, she plays like a, you know, far lefty loony. And all it is, is her saying like, oh, we should have thousands of bathrooms for all the different gender identities. And she's got a nose ring and she's an anarchist and a socialist who loves AOC. There's no sort of joke structure there. It's all just her sort of kind of with wild eyes repeating the same things that Laura Ingram is going to say on her show an hour later or before. So then I mean, I, I think you and I don't really get it in the sense of like, <laughs> why, why do people find this funny? What, so how do these people end up so 
successful within their niche? Like, what what are we missing? Why is this humor appealing to some people? Is it just simply, uh, you know, some people are just racist or xenophobic or? It's a good question. Um, you know, the the semi kind of academic lane, I'll take this in for a moment, is that for, for 20 years, we associated comedy with just liberal political causes, right? And there was an industry built on the back of those um, cultural institutions, Saturday Night Live, the Colbert Report, the Daily Show. Think of how many sort of people appeared on your television every night who were voicing liberal political opinions. And so we naturally came to assume that those two things would forever be bonded together. Or even that almost that that there's this objective thing to comedy yeah. where it's always, we're, you know, the only things that make us laugh are inherently liberal, right? Like Precisely. Yeah, yeah correct. But what I think we're seeing over the past five, six years with the development of this, this right-wing comedy complex is the building of conservative institutions. So the, the, the first couple of successful attempts, namely Gutfeld and the Joe Rogan experience to sort of make a recurring financially viable um, uh, way out of doing jokes that don't cater to liberal audiences. It's not always funny. It doesn't always look and behave like comedy has in the past 20 years, but that's because we've got to expand our definition of what comedy is. We can't just define comedy as that which we like because it supports our political causes. We have to define it as an industry, as an art form that has the attended effect of making its audience laugh. And we see those two things very clearly in this right-wing comedy universe. It is financially sustainable and it makes its intended audience laugh, even if we're not part of that intended audience. How do you sort of get through to people on that, that point? Because I think, I think <laughs> this is what is most controversial to people. They'll say, you know, it's not comedy because it punches yeah. down. It's, it therefore is definitely not, and I'm like, no, it's still within the genre <laughs> of comedy. It's just that I don't think we necessarily find it humorous, yeah. but other people do. That doesn't mean we, you know, condone it. I mean, saying, it's almost as if um, merely saying that there is such a thing as right-wing comedy is seen as condoning uh, that kind of humor. That's right. And I've, I've had to clarify that precise point for, for many folks. I'll, I'll, let me use a very clumsy metaphor to, to clarify here. Lots of folks have different tastes in pizza. I myself might not like uh, all kinds of different pizza. I might be of the opinion that pineapple doesn't belong on pizza at all. But I would never look at a slice of Hawaiian pizza and say like, what's that? That's not pizza. That's, that's a tomato bread triangle with melted cheese and fruit on it. No, of course I know that's still pizza because it has all the familiar beats and serves the purpose of fulfilling my friend's appetite even though I don't think pineapple belongs on it. The same principle applies when you're defining genres of entertainment media. You can't look just at the, the formal qualities of it itself. You have to look at the before and after of it. Who makes it? For what reasons? Who consumes it? And for what reasons? What happens weeks later? Do they go back and get more Hawaiian pizza because they really liked it and they want to keep buying it, right? It's not just a, a thing that begins and ends with your reaction to I don't like conservative comedy. I don't like Hawaiian pizza because it's distasteful to me. We've got to look at a, a broader context behind what it is. Do you think though that there's also this issue of 
I almost feel like the reason there's such a strong pushback when you talk about this right-wing comedy complex, because I did notice, even when I interviewed you, there were strong reactions right away. Do you think there's this idea that if we acknowledge that this thing exists, uh, then it's it 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 becomes more real and and yeah. like do do you know where I'm going with that? Where I, yeah. I feel like people think that if we acknowledge that there's a right wing comedy complex, that it's therefore more dangerous. Whereas I think not confronting it is actually the bigger danger. I 100% agree. Do you remember in the the 2015 Republican primaries when? We dismissed candidate Trump as just a buffoon and a sideshow and, oh, we don't have to take him seriously. And then he becomes uh, president. Burying our head in the sand doesn't make the monster go away. It's, it's still going to be lurking under our bed, even if we want to sort of shut our eyes to the reality. The, the bigger point there, though, uh, that we urge liberals to at least acknowledge this is a thing is that it's being used as a recruitment mechanism for the right. Comedy has an appeal, especially to young male listeners and, and audiences, and we see that particularly strongly with the Joe Rogan experience, that is being used as a recruitment mechanism to get somewhat politically ambivalent young minds interested in, curious in politically right-wing causes, and to say, well, if the cool guys are over here doing edgy, adventurous comedy, why would I go over here to liberals who are just doing this same staid, stuffy, orange man bad, comedy that I've gotten to know over the last 20 years. The real experimentation and funny stuff is over here and it's becoming aligned more and more with these uh, right-wing causes. It sounds like in a way this, this right-wing comedy complex that you're talking about, it's almost doing what, there's this guy that used to work for Alex Jones and Infowars, uh, Paul Joseph Watson that said, he had this saying a few years back where he would say, conservatism is the new punk rock. And of course I roll my eyes at that but they are trying to sort of brand as the countercultural thing, the cool thing that the kids have to get into because this is edgy and this is, you know, going against the man. Right. Yeah, they, they are trying to fashion themselves as the new sort of countercultural impulse. Uh, of course, that's riven with all the same contradictions that you identified early on that they claim they're the ones being canceled and nobody's listening to their voices, but they have pretty robust uh, social media presences and, and their own TV shows now. Um, there is some truth to the fact that they are the ones with growing cultural cachet, right? I feel like maybe uh, lefty liberal comedy cachet is maybe plateauing or at the very least it is caught up in a game of self-censoriousness. We on the left have tended to not be as adventurous and edgy in our comedy in recent years as the right has. And for a whole host of reasons, right? In the Trump years, we leaned hard into culture being good, right? That's why we got the good place. And that's why we have Ted Lasso. And we want culture to make us feel good because the political reality is so abhorrent. Well, the right occupied that economic lane with what we used to do, with edge, with trying to be provocative, with trying to push the boundaries on what you could and could not say. I'm not endorsing that as good or as ethical, I'm merely describing and asking liberals to acknowledge that as a reality. Well, but, but it is possible to have, I, I mean, I think there's past examples of comedy that was more liberal or left-wing that pushed the boundaries and, oh, and was kind of edgy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
oh, of course, we, we on the left have monopolized that territory, I think, for, for the better part of the, the 21st century. Ours are the cool, edgy comedians. But in terms of the institutions, right, the late night shows, Saturday Night Live, I think there's a pretty compelling case to say that those have become not edgy at all, just like totally stuffy and uh, uh, stuck in, in 2007. The Trevor Noah Daily Show, I think, is a, a pretty good example of this. That, that show has devolved into him doing impersonations of folks and not having the same sort of political edge as Jon Stewart had. I, I was going to say, too, I mean, that's a good example because, I mean, Trevor Noah was just at the White House press uh, dinner. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, I mean, if, if you're a young kid, you're going to be like, he's hanging out at the White House. He ain't the rebel guy. <laughs> right. Right. Whereas in, uh, I think it was 2006, Stephen Colbert appeared in character at the, the W. Bush uh, correspondence dinner and very much uh, spoke right to him and, and made fun of him to his face. Um, I, I don't want to get wrapped around the axle sort of comparing which liberal comedian is, is better than the other, other than to say like our most famous liberal comedians, the, the institutions, the things we used to hold in very high regard during the W. Bush years have lost some of their edge. We see that edge being taken up pretty clearly by comedians on the right and to sort of bury our head in the sand and pretend it's not happening does our uh, liberal side uh, a political disservice. So there were two more things I wanted to cover and I've been saving Rogan till the very end here and, and we'll get to Rogan in a second, but what's the, what are some ways we can address the sort of right-wing comedy complex or like, are there any ways to combat their sort of recruitment? Um, and if there's any right-wingers listening, no, we're not going to try to like cancel you from existence or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for, for putting it that way. Our, ours is not a prescriptive project. Matt and I are not political activists. We're not going to go tell you to knock on doors and here's what you do and say. The, the first battle that I think we have to, to win is merely being honest with ourselves and acknowledging the existence of right-wing comedy. So this can happen at the, the micro and interpersonal level. Anytime you come across a friend or a family member who wants to say, uh, that's not funny, that's just some bullshit outrage stuff, that's just old person stuff on Fox News, point them to the broader universe that we discuss in the book, right? That it may start with Gutfeld, but it can lead to these much more avowedly bad faith places where trolls and alt-right voices hang out. So pointing them to the connections to much worse things, I think is a a powerful uh, tool to use when trying to convince a a skeptic. So we've been building up to it. Let's get into Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan for me is probably the the weirdest character (laughs) in all of this because Rogan in some ways still comes off at times as apolitical, but he's also then having people like Michael Malice on his program. And Michael Malice to me is just a water carrier uh, for the right and, and also even really far right elements. I mean, he's written whole books that yeah. you know are kind of like, oh, I'm not really you know a white nationalist, but these this is what white nationalists think. Ha ha. Yeah. Here's, here's the story of a time I hung out with them for a weekend and how funny they were, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know. Rogan, Rogan at times doesn't feel like he's completely, that you can completely pin him down into the right 
but it seems like he also he dips his foot in it and he also I think knows that there's an audience from the right that listens to him. So how are we supposed to look at Rogan, I guess, or examine Rogan within all of this? Yeah, so Joe Rogan doesn't have politics. He has demographics. His primary loyalty is to the 11 million, mostly young male listeners that that listen to his uh, episodes every week or several times a week so that he can sell them butcher box and off-brand Viagra and pubic hair trimmers. Now, this audience tends to be skeptical of, of institutional voices, right? So Rogan's made his name by positioning himself outside of the mainstream kind of media apparatus. Not, not just that, but also positioning himself as, oh, I just have like people on and I just Correct. talk to them. Where it's like, really, no, there's so much money in your whole Joe Rogan experience now that it's not simply, I mean, maybe it started that way in some ways, yeah. but there's so much money in it now that I, I don't think you can simply say, oh, I'm just the guy that is smoking pot right. with my friends in my basement and recording it. Yeah. If, if you follow the money and connections, they overwhelmingly lead rightward and not leftward. So he loves to hold up the fact that he endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2020 and has had uh, whatever. Well, he's, he's had people that, like... Um, you know, I, I've, I've had Abby Martin on the show and she's sort of a, a left-wing voice. Mm -hmm. But like overall, it seems like he has a lot more people from the right on at times. Exactly right. So his he can plausibly deny any political affiliation by saying like, no, I support gay rights and drug legalization. But much, much more overwhelmingly, he's got Milo Yiannopoulos on. He's got Dave Smith and the Legion of Skanks and Michael Malice and all of these right-leaning voices who lead you to the people who lead you to the Nazis. And you cannot say the same for his nominally like liberal or left-wing guests that he has on, which are much uh, fewer and further between than his right-wing guests. So in the same way that Gutfeld kind of functions as a front door for a lot of the sort of Fox News viewership to discover further right voices, Rogan does that for uh, politically neutral to ambivalent young male listeners. So he may attract those listeners by saying, whatever, man, I'm just hanging out with my buddies in Austin. But the, the connections that show has to much more nefarious voices on the right is undeniable. And he's not responsible for what happens to you after you leave his show. He just opens the door and says, here's this whole universe of wild thoughts out there. Maybe black people have different brains than, than white people do. And he's got a phrenology expert on or whatever. And he'll have that episode in the same week as somebody who's, you know, doing actual microbiology and he'll hold that up as a, an example of, of good uh, liberal science. Well, it's, I mean, it, it's interesting because, I mean, the two things that I think get me about Rogan is, and I mean, this is kind of like subjective. The first thing is, you know, I used to listen to his stand-up growing up. I didn't think it was like bad stand-up. I, I think he has a little bit of charisma and he can make a good joke here and there, which I think that, you know... I, that plays into something there. And I think also he occasionally does have guests on that are interesting that aren't from the right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's what really makes him a trickier figure for a lot of people to talk about, because I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, his MMA shows are good. And his shows where he has like a comedian on or, uh, you know, someone that survived a, a cult or something like that. Those can actually be interesting regardless of your politics. Totally. I, and folks will frequently point to, oh, he's never endorsed or, or um, uh, voted Republican, and he claims, you know, not to be affiliated with the Republican Party. You don't have to 
be a Republican, to, to be right wing. Uh, what, what makes you a reactionary right wing person is expressing vaccine skepticism when there's a global pandemic, you know, slaughtering people. When you, you say that oh, we don't need gun control because only criminals will have guns, then over and over again, his commentary, his guest list, and the connections those comments and guests have to folks much, much further on the right, they overwhelmingly point uh, to his right-wing politics. I think that's undeniable. So I guess, what would your final thoughts be on um, maybe addressing, I guess, this whole phenomena of, of the Joe Rogan experience? Uh, so I'll, I'll go back to something you mentioned earlier. I, I believe in free speech. I, I also believe in folks um, suffering the repercussions for exercising their free speech in, in the, the ways that they, they see fit. Um, don't forget though, that even something as seemingly politically noble as being a free speech advocate has an economic motivation at the end of the day. So Joe Rogan, the Legion of Skanks, this whole universe of libertarian podcasters and comedians that he runs around with is first and foremost, an economic lane to fill. They, they saw the comedy world and realized that most folks are center liberal. So we're gonna get a different type of audience who may be just as loyal by leaning rightward on this. I think you see this being borne out. Uh, my in-laws are all in Austin. So I've got a, a ton of family and friends down there and he's building himself a little sort of, you know, libertarian tech bro universe there. Um, where Chappelle's circulating through the Kill Tony podcast, uh, Elon Musk has settled there. So this uh, personality type of kind of free speech exercising libertarian young male that's attracted to uh, exploring all sorts of different ideas is really just a cover for um, uh, catering to this, this young male uh, libertarian base. There was one last thing I wanted to mention. I don't know that you cover it in the book, but what do you make of uh, recent developments with uh, the right-wing comedy complex? And I'm thinking in particular of the directions that, say, Dave Chappelle has gone in. Yeah. Um, Chappelle's a, a tricky case. Uh, I think the first thing to note is that this universe is not exclusive to straight white men, right? The, there are identity-based um, reactionary jokes available for folks outside of that, that category as well. Uh, we discussed in the book, uh, Diamond and Silk, the kind of disgraced uh, former Fox News contributors who we saw at CPAC. They're two black women who brought the house down with a comedy roast at CPAC when we saw them. Chappelle used to be a kind of, um, uh, you know, liberal lion in the, in the 2000s for his kind of racial humor. But I think, um, folks get old, they get wealthy, and they get reactionary. It's not going to happen to everyone, but it's going to happen to more and more people outside of just the familiar sort of white male uh, comedian that we, we cover in the book. And I think um, Chappelle's not there yet, but he's hovering in that orbit in his association with Rogan, at least. Do you think there's also different levels to all this? Because I think, I, th I think a lot of people want to define things like left and right in very black and white sort of ways. Um, when really, I think if you look at the ecosystem of the left, I mean, there's a lot of argument uh, between you know people 
uh, on the Bernie Sanders side for say the 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 sort of um, Nancy Pelosi type Democrats. Yeah. You know, so I, I think that's true on the right too. So you know, I I think there's probably differences between a Joe Rogan or or a Tim Allen and uh, people on the farthest ends of that spectrum, like yeah. we said, Sam Hyde. So it's almost like I, I feel like people have trouble sort of realizing that, you know, uh, Rogan may actually have like a few views that are fairly liberal, uh, you know, in comparison to a Sam Hyde. But there is sort of an ecosystem with different levels and strains um, that, that vary in extremity. You're absolutely right. And that's why we're careful in the book. And I try to be careful here not to say that uh, Tim Allen, Greg Gutfeld are alt-right because of X, Y, and Z factors. We're we're careful to say that the algorithms of social media and the, the way that this operates as an industry, the fact that these comedians are so intentional about promoting one another, talking to one another on social media, means that with just a few clicks, YouTube recommendations, podcast recommendations, you can get to the truly nasty stuff. One of the main arguments of the book is that this uh, variety in right-wing voices is bonded together by laughing at a common enemy, the libs. And this is a dangerous- Owning the libs. Owning the libs, precisely right. And this is a dangerous sort of political tool that we see them wielding. We on the left, because our political coalition is bigger, it's it's more diverse, it's more inclusive. You identified, you know, far lefty uh, Chapo trap house type voices, making fun of the Pelosi centrists. I love Chapo trap house and the, the sort of, left-wing universe of podcasts is something I I really enjoy listening to. Um, But we tend not to be as good at um, uniting with one another against the common enemy on the right as the right is against us. There's a whole host of reasons for that, but this uh, emergent practice of comedy on the right is one way that they really sort of get over their differences. If you're an evangelical Babylon Bee reader, you tend to get on board with the libertarians because you know they'll you know, own the libs with their comedy. We don't have that same sort of cohesive mechanism via comedy on the left. Well, hey, Nick Marks, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Is there anything we didn't get to that maybe you want to uh, say here in closing or anything that isn't in the book that you think people should maybe be thinking about with regards to this subject matter? Uh, no, not, not uh, popping to mind. We're going to be doing a, a book reading in Washington, D.C. Uh, Wednesday, June 8th at Lost City Books, 730. You can follow us on social for information about that. Otherwise, uh, please check out the book. That's not funny how the right makes comedy work for them. Buy it at your favorite uh, indie bookstore. Don't, don't give money to Lord Bezos. Please do. Go buy it locally. Go buy a, a paper copy of it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nick Marks and that you'll check out his book, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I'm going to be adjusting the producer's credits list and updating it So if you're interested in getting a producer's credit, head on over to patreon.com slash parallaxviews and join the $10 tier or above to get your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of the show. The updating of the producer's credits list 
will be done by the end of this week. So, once again, patreon.com slash parallaxuse. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxuse. It is your support that makes this show possible. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.